but but I think those people who predicted the death of mainstream news media um, have predicted it prematurely. I think COVID has given it a new lease of life. Welcome to Pros and Coms. In this podcast, I talk to people about their personal and professional stories, uncovering the different ways and common themes of resonating with an audience. After all, communication is essentially storytelling. I'm Maria Ginai, and today I'm talking to Fiona Fox. Fiona is the CEO of the Science Media Centre, an independent press office for science in the UK. She's seen how grave the fallout from bad science reporting can be, from scandals like MMR and GM crops. Her mission through the SMC is to connect science with the media, by helping scientists communicate with the media, and by helping reporters get science right. Tell me a bit about yourself, what your careers look like, and yeah, just let's get to know you. Okay, right. So um, I'm Fiona Fox. I decided just I was actually accepted at Leeds University to do politics and and after I'd been accepted I decided I wanted to be a journalist and start looking at journalism degrees um so I changed at the last minute and went to something called the Polytechnic of Central London um which was renowned for its journalism course and had lots of journalists teaching on it um and was yeah it was really hard to get into but a really great course Um, And that's what I did. I went off to London and studied journalism for three years and then never actually became a journalist. Because this course was so competitive, it had a lot of people on it who were already brilliant journalists. And immediately I thought I could never be as good as them. So I think when you study journalism or media studies, your options are kind of, do you want to go into media relations or PR or journalism or writing or whatever? So I chose to be a press officer. And what is really um, kind of is the constant theme of my career is that I didn't want to do PR for organisations that weren't already newsworthy. I wanted to go and be a press officer for an organisation that was already in the news. So and it is a really big difference. You know, when you're doing PR for, I don't know, um, Gucci watches, you have to be very creative and innovative and hire celebrities and do stunts and um, I actually went to work for the Brook Advisory Centres, which offered contraception and abortion advice for young people, right in the middle of an attempt to uh, lower very dramatically the um, time limit for abortion. And actually, it was young people who who were presenting later for abortion. So right from about day three in my first job, I was doing setting up interviews in national newspapers about an issue that was of national public importance. So that's where I've stayed. Basically, I moved from there to the Equal Opportunities Commission for seven years, just as it was kind of starting out. And they took a lot of legal cases because the way in 1975 was the Sex Discrimination Act, the way the Equal Opportunities Commission decided to really enforce that legislation was to take prosecutions against employers that were not implementing equal pay and sex discrimination law. So I had great fun, got to know all these amazing women who were taking very high profile sex discrimination cases, many of whom won. And I loved it, absolutely loved it. Left there and went to work at the National Council for One Parent Families. Um, And that was the year that they introduced the Child Support Act, which had been lobbied for for many years, which actually forced absent fathers to pay maintenance for their children. They didn't have to before. So again, a massively busy time right up there in the headlines 
an issue of national importance. And then just the job just prior to this, then I went to work for an overseas aid agency. And that was great fun for the first few years. I worked for CAFOD, which is a Catholic church agency, one of the big five in the UK, worked very closely with Oxfam and Christian Aid and Action Aid. But the big issue there, because I went there in about 1998, was the millennium. And we set up a great campaign with all the aid agencies um, called Jubilee 2000, which was basically galvanizing public support for cancelling debt, third world debt, to mark the millennium. And it was a great focus and I had great fun and the national news and international news media were interested. Um, but soon after that, it became clear that that focus of the millennium had, had generated some interest in developing world issues. But actually, the UK media cared less and less about the developing world. So I became that press officer. I didn't want to be thinking about taking celebrities to Africa and dumping gold bullion on the streets of outside Downing Street to get a photo opportunity and I didn't I didn't really enjoy it and being told that my director who'd worked in aid for 30 years wasn't good enough they needed Bob Geldof to write their opinion piece so I just got kind of tired of doing that and thought right what's my next move thinking it would only be for a few years and at that time so we're talking just after the millennium 2000 2001 2002 it was GM crops kill um, MMR causes autism. It was science absolutely on the front pages every day and not being covered well. So that was, yeah, I just decided that I would um, I would start looking to take my skills, which are very transferable skills, my press office skills into the world of science. So going back to your change from politics to journalism, why did that happen? Oh, now that's a good question. Um so I was I was doing A levels. I was in a I was in relatively small classes, and all of my teachers. Um, I actually did Welsh because I was um, born and bred in Wales. I studied Welsh, and my teacher was a Welsh nationalist who was very political, but very into the media coverage of the the Welsh national issue. And um, and I was the only one taking A levels. So my classes with him over two years were kind of half learning Welsh and half talking about politics and journalism. And um, similarly with my history teacher was very into kind of the media and the media's role in impacting on uh, policy and politics. Um, and I just I just started looking into these courses and thought it would be more fun. I, I, my husband actually teaches politics and um, it, it's not a matter of studying politics. It's a matter of studying university politics, which is actually very technical very academic subject. This course that I found at PCL was a lot of making your own documentaries, going out on placements into national and local papers. I actually spent about three months, there was a, a Greenwich by-election, which became really famous um, for various reasons at the time. And I was basically catching lifts off incredibly important um, journalists like Paul Routledge, who was the political editor of The Times and um, other people who would who would give me lifts. Andrew Marr was one of them, actually. He was a journalist at the time, a young journalist on The Observer, I think, at the time. Wow. And going around reporting on that by-election. And that, that particular course gave you the opportunity to do that. So honestly, it just, uh, I was interested in both politics and journalism, but this course sounded like much more fun. And how did you find your foray into science? Well, it's it's so interesting, isn't it? Because it really wasn't the science that drew me in. Like I said, it was it was the fact that 
I suddenly woke up to the fact that if I wanted to work on issues that were on the front pages every day where you didn't have to come up with some mad PR photo call idea or get celebrities to help you, then that that's what it was. It was science. It was MMR. It was GM crops. It was animal research. But So it wasn't the science that drew me in. But now that I'm in science, very, very soon after I started, I decided that I just really liked the way scientists went about things. And it's really interesting, this, because the the committee that set us up juxtaposed scientists' world with journalists' world and said that scientists are completely different. They have a completely different culture. You couldn't get more of a culture clash. You know, here's these news journalists who just want to get a story out there without any of the nuances and they don't like uncertainty and they don't like shades of grey. Um, and, and, and here's these scientists who spend three years diligently researching a question, then wait another six months before getting it published in a peer-reviewed journal. So they were always set up as massively contradictory specialisms. But I found the opposite because I'd obviously, I was very idealistic about journalism. And that's one of the things I loved about my course as well, that that journalists would, you know, tell the truth and uh, tell truth to power shine the kind of spotlight on the things that people are trying to hide. There was this really noble cause around journalism. Um, And I found that in science, that they were trying to tell the truth, that they were trying to put aside normal biases and prejudices um, to one side in order to find out through experimental means whether something is true. You know, coffee causes cancer. You know, you can have an opinion that it does. You can go on, you know, lots of media programs and say it does. But where is the experimental evidence that it does? And these um, scientists were setting up these really robust, rigorous experiments to answer their questions. So I I really like that. And I actually found an affinity between the more noble cause of journalism, which is getting to the truth and that truth being objective and impartial and complex um, and the world of science, which was also objective, impartial and complex. Um, now, of course, there are plenty of tensions and it would be idealistic to say they, they're the same kind of thing. But I just found I loved it. And I loved scientists, too. Um, remember that I'd always worked for big organisations. There was a lot of kind of messaging around and what, what is the right messaging and what opinion does this organisation take? Um, and to overnight, and you find this with a lot of press officers who who get jobs in universities, um, I've talked to some recently, and it's quite comical, actually, because they've come from, I don't know, British Gas or the government, where it's so rigid and corporate and on message. And then they come into this university and they try to control these absolute, uh, absolutely robust, independent thinking academics. And there's no way. <laughs> um, and of course, you've got this kind of free speech. You've got academic freedom. Um, you've got these very, you know, hundreds of thousands of very strong characters within our research institutions who who are not for being having their their uh, messages managed so to speak so I loved that as well I've never been somebody who really enjoyed that kind of um, corporate messaging side of things so it was just a joy to be amongst scientists um, all, all kinds of scientists and actually right from then this this issue has come up a lot recently about um, whether scientists are good communicators very early on I decided that the narrative um, that had been around when I got the job, and I'd read lots of articles about it in preparation for the job, that these scientists were not very good communicators. I just decided that was very lazy. Um, Some of them aren't, and I absolutely can see why some of the 
ways of working within the scientific process um, and not amenable to being kind of clear and accessible speakers. But there's just a lot of people doing science in the country. And there are some that are fantastic communicators. Many had already chosen that they wanted to both do science, but also engage the public about their science. Many others, for example, were clinical researchers. So they were very used to, you know, spending many, many hours in the laboratory, but also then going to a clinic where they saw 20 patients and had to describe that research to those patients or break bad news to those patients or whatever, had an incredibly um, accessible manner. So I've, I've kind of been fighting that myth for, for about 20 years since I joined science. But yeah, so there was lots of things that, that, that made me think in the first couple of years, I'm really enjoying this. Um, I also, this, this particular way that I entered, I think I was, I was so, so lucky. I'd read reports about the time that I decided to move into science. I'd read reports in the national newspapers about Susan Greenfield, who was the new then very exciting neuroscientist who'd been appointed to run the Royal Institution, that she had decided to um, set up a new organisation. It had come out of a House of Lords committee that had looked into some of the conflicts between science and the media during MMR and uh, GM crops frenzy. Um, and they'd made a recommendation for an independent press office for science to work with scientists to engage more effectively, especially in these contentious subjects. So, so that centre was literally being, uh, the concept was being born as I was looking. And then I waited around, I wrote to people about it, said I was interested, I waited around. And uh, when I saw it advertised, I applied. And this was lovely because it was a new organisation. I got to set it up myself. So the other aspect of this is I entered a world I loved, uh, the science world, but I also had a job I loved um, with no big organisation, just a small team of people, an independent press office, so not kind of linked to any one big institution or pushing any one message and gloriously um, not being kind of accountable to anyone, you know, independent from its funders, independent from government, independent from the official scientific establishment so really genuinely the voice of scientists in the UK. Well that's a perfect segue into the next question which is we've talked very mysteriously about this organisation but it's the Science (laughs) Media Centre that's what it is so you've said about how it's come about what sort of stuff it was addressing so on a day-to-day basis what does the SMC do? Yeah um, so I think just a slight preamble to that is that, um, and because it's quite funny in a way for me to reflect on, is that when we opened, we didn't actually know what we would do. <laughs> so we had this, we, and that's, that's the joy of setting up a brand new organisation. We had this kind of mission, I suppose, to renew public trust in science after these huge media frenzies that had damaged public trust in science. Um, we also knew that we, our job was to encourage scientists to engage more effectively with these particularly contentious stories, stories that stay in the headlines, maybe like MMR for three, four, five, six years. They're on the front pages for months and years rather than for a few days. So we knew what the mission was, but we didn't know how to enact that vision. And there was, I actually started in November 2001, but we didn't open until April 2002. And I was very firm on that. I know Susan Greenfield was very frustrated that there I was in post, but not helping journalists. 
but I was very conscious of the fact that we really needed to talk to a lot of people and find out what was missing. It's a, um, something I feel really strongly about. I still today get phone calls from people saying, oh, we've decided to set up a new website that does, you know, that, that checks out facts. And you say, well, hold on, have you looked at full facts? They do it. They do it absolutely brilliantly. And, you know, they've got lots of funding and lots of staff. Why would you do the same thing? Um, there's a lot of that goes on. So I spent a lot of time um, asking people, where are the gaps? What what doesn't happen? And, you know, I remember going to see the Royal Society and them saying, everything that you have suggested you might do, we already do. And I said, great, okay, what don't you do? Um, and that was really my question to everyone. I went to the journalists, you know, I remember Tim Radford, science editor of the um, Guardian, saying, well, I've got all my contacts. I've had contacts for years. I don't need to come to the SNC for contacts. And then I remember saying to him, right, okay, well, what do you struggle with? And he's, he can't remember what the example was, but he said something about a story that a big controversial story that had broken at five o'clock on a Friday night and they couldn't get any press officers at their desk um, and they desperately needed comments straight away. So one of the first things we realised was that nobody was um, running a rapid reaction service where scientists were proactively, and this is really important, rather than the journalists being able to find them, where scientists were proactively commenting on something that had just happened within the last 20 minutes. So that was our first thing. We, we set up a database. We knew we needed really good quality scientists because one of the criticisms was that the scientists at that stage who were making themselves available were the ones that loved doing media. They weren't necessarily the best scientists in the field. And of course, you also had um, you know, you had people like Susan Greenfield, to her credit, and Robert Winston, to his credit, doing interviews about GM crops and, and vaccines because the journalists couldn't get the vaccine experts or the plant scientists. So that was one of our early ideas as well, was we need very, very good scientists. We also need to persuade scientists in the right field to start sharing their expertise. So we set up the database and then we set up this rapid reaction service of the first year or so that was how we influenced the media that every time there was a significant scientific development we would go to that database go to the right keyword because every scientist had a keyword next to them denoting what their area of expertise was and say this has just happened Fukushima's just happened there are there are major floods in the north of England you're an expert on flooding from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology can you please tell us what you know um, and speculate intelligently, speculate based on evidence. Don't say, you know, exactly what's happening um, in Fukushima, but do say what we have learned about the dangers or the threats of radiation from previous nuclear accidents. So it was a fantastic service. Journalists who had said to us, we don't need a science media centre, really appreciated this service. I remember actually, I can't remember what year this was, when, when Dolly the sheep died, and there were about three of us in the team at that stage. I think it was only 2004, five, something like that. And we'd all gone to the pub on a Friday night. Um, but we were, we'd been very careful to give our mobile number to absolutely everyone. And Clive Cookson from the FT phoned me in the pub and said, Dolly the sheep's just died. And what want to know is he was seven, or she was seven, I should say, um, is seven an average age for a sheep to die? <laughs> or has she died because she was genetically modified? <laughs> Um, so we all took our pints, I remember it vividly, took our pints out of the pub and went back into the Science Media Centre and worked all evening and found, just by phone bashing and emailing, found enough, I can't remember how many, but five to ten scientists who worked in the Roslyn Institute, who knew about 
genetically modifying animals who are real experts and of course sheep experts and apparently seven wasn't an unusual age it was a little bit younger but um so we we certainly they didn't know for sure but they were able to say that it's not automatically the case that this sheep has died early prematurely um, because it was genetically modified so that was fantastic so that was great um then we i think maybe in year two or something we sat around and thought there's something we're missing here because there's these breaking stories and we're having a huge impact on them and journalists are using the scientist quote and because of that the public are hearing a lot lot more from the best scientists in the country on things like fukushima so we were very pleased with that but there was something a bit more pedestrian happening in a way in that you know it, i've never actually worked this out but about 50, at least 50% of the stories we were seeing in the newspapers every day about science coming from the journals. So the kind of daily diet of a science or health reporter on a national news outlet is what's in the BMJ today, what's in the Lancet, what's in science, what's in nature. And there's probably about 15 of those big journals that all the journalists will look at. And those are papers like, you know, they will, the, the press officers for those journals will pick out of the whole of the Lancet that week, they'll pick out three stories they think the media will be interested in, or three stories that are very important. And it will be some kind of trial showing that coffee causes cancer or coffee cures cancer, or a new study builds on our evidence about neonics causing bee decline. So new findings on a controversial subject, that, that is a kind of daily diet of science journalists and we weren't having any impact on that and we were also having a lot of complaints about that and there uh, when I said earlier that there was a lot that scientists and journalists have in common and um, this was an area where they really didn't see eye to eye because the the scientists just were furious that journalists would take one study and put that prominently maybe even on the front page or third item on the 10 o'clock news as a significant development when all it was was one single study and they don't really work like that scientists see you know significant findings as a build-up of papers a build-up of evidence you know 10 different clinical trials all pointing in one direction um, so they felt really frustrated by this that the public were being misled by the the prominence given to these single studies so again we scratched our heads we sat around thinking how can we uh, influence this and we came up with what I think has probably been the best thing we've we've done at the SMC which is we persuaded and it was quite a lot of persuasion at the time we persuaded the press officers of all those journals to not treat us as an institutional press officer they never ever shared their findings with institutional press officers before they came out um, but to treat us as something different a kind of bridge between the scientific community and the media and to treat us as a, a body that could improve the reporting and accuracy of their the studies they were highlighting in their press releases so that worked and they started to send us the press releases for new studies two or three days before the embargo lifts which allowed us then to go back to the same database i spoke about to go back to those really top quality scientists with their keywords and say you're a statins expert uh, there's a paper coming out in the bmj tomorrow showing that statins have dangerous side effects can you give us a comment? Um, and that comment then would go out in the two to three days before the embargo lifted. And critically, the journalists could copy and paste it into their copy. They could also, if they're broadcast journalists, they could also just say, oh, that's interesting what she's saying. Let's get her on the 10 o'clock news as a third party. 
Um, and it's just been brilliant because a lot, I mean, obviously it really depends on the study, but a lot of those comments, if you did any kind of quick look at our website, they're saying things like, you know, beautifully designed study from our friends in Edinburgh University, but um, was only conducted in mice, was a very small study of 10 people, would need to be replicated in humans before being reliable. So the the, the message really to the public reading that that newspaper article is treat with caution. Um, and we love that. And the journalists love it. I mean, when I when I talk to scientists about this, they all they always are amazed. You know, why would journalists want to include two or three comments in the article with the headline coffee causes cancer? Basically saying, hold on a minute, it might it, whether it does or not, it isn't proven based on this particular single study. But journalists do want to do that because they're science journalists and they're health journalists, they're specialists, and they don't want to mislead their readers. So I think we should credit journalists for loving this service, not just in the UK, but it's a service that all the science media centres around the world in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, Canada, we all do this. And our journalists in different countries really like this. And of course, I shouldn't I shouldn't just stress the kind of pouring of cold water onto findings, which we often do, but you know, unbeknown to us, sometimes we'll send out a study. It looks to us like maybe fairly weak. But what do we know? You know, apart from myself, I don't have a scientific background. All my colleagues do, but they're not specialists um, and they're no longer uh, research active. So we don't really know. And when we send it, sometimes, you know, seven or eight scientists from different research institutes get back quick as a flash and say, this is absolutely gold standard research. It's the holy grail. We've been waiting for this group to report for a year now. It's a really cleverly designed study. So very often it's our comments that actually put something on the front page rather than take it off the front page. Um, and that's just as important, I think, because you want the public to know when a particular finding is very significant and is reliable and something that should change policy or change behaviour. Absolutely. So the third thing we do then is we run press briefings. Um, and again, that was that was something that evolved. I think we didn't do it in the first couple of years. And that was really just to give the scientists the opportunity to be in the room. It sounds funny now with COVID because I haven't been in the room with uh, these journalists for a year. But um, that was actually a really nice thing to do where scientists who had a new study coming out in a particularly controversial area that they knew was complicated to explain, that they didn't want to do in a one side of A4 press release, and then that they, they could get the journalists in. And we, you know, our average attendance at these briefings was 10 uh, national news journalists. So all the big hitters would come, Sky News, BBC, The Sun, The Daily Mail, The Guardian, The Times, The Broadsheet. They'd all come along and be able to kind of quiz these scientists, you know, how, um, if I say this, am I getting it right? The scientists would all say, no, that would be a terrible, you'd be completely inaccurate. Um, and that that to and fro, I really love because then the journalists say, look, we have to explain this to our reader. You know, if it's Nick McDermott from The Sun, he's saying, I've got 500 words to explain this. And what you're, the way you're explaining it is too complicated. And, and they kind of say, well, what if I say this? And they say, no, 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 definitely not that. And then they come back and say, what if I say this? And then finally, both sides agree. Yes. OK, that might not be the way I would put it in a scientific paper in uh, Nature magazine. But yes, that is that is absolutely broadly accurate for a news article. So I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that that those press briefings um, better inform the public because they're just more um, more measured and more accurate um, and they also, of course, the other lovely thing about them is that these journalists are 
you know, on a daily basis, sometimes we often have one a day or several a week, we'll, we'll be popping by the Science Media Centre on their way into the office and meeting four amazing scientists. They'll get their cards, they'll find out at the end what other research they're working on. So that 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 old thing of the SMC will be body that brings scientists and journalists together, um, that really does happen at briefings. And actually, now that we're doing them on video um, and on Zoom, um, it's still working and we're getting a lot more. We're getting 30, 40 journalists to most of our briefings now, which is great because it's easier to join. So. so you said a little bit back that you have this database of scientists who at the beginning you persuaded to come on and give you comments. And now I think just from interning at the Science Media Centre, the database is massive. But also from being a former scientist and now I do communication stuff and I worked in a professional services uh, department for a university. Scientists are, not all of them, but a lot of scientists are notoriously bad at getting back to emails or phone calls. So how do you get these scientists to interact with you really quickly when you ask them? <laughs> um, so I suppose part of that is the recruitment process to the database. Um, you rightly say that our database is massive. Um, however, it's I think now um, it's probably around 4,000 scientists, which is a fantastic resource to have. But it's still a drop in the ocean in, in terms of the number of scientists in the UK. And I think um, what partly explains that is that we don't just, for example, if a press officer says, oh, I've heard about the SMC, here's 20 scientists um, that that. Um, our university like to put up for interview add them to your database we don't do it like that we have a conversation with these well first of all we check that they're good scientists we pubmed them we we look at whether they publish in peer-reviewed journals we we check with other experts in the field that they are a good expert so we really quality is a massive part of recruitment but then we engage with them in conversation and that's really important because we, we actually don't want too many scientists on the database who never respond and they don't have the time to respond and who frankly who don't see it as important to respond uh, one of the really interesting things that there is a new um, science media center type organization in the states that's very new um, but one of the things I cannot convince the chief executive of there is that very very good scientists will give time to the science media center and respond instantly um, and it's really frustrating me because he's so wrong. It doesn't break down like that. <laughs> when a very, very good scientist has become convinced that that part of being a very good scientist is to speak to the public about their science, they are then convinced and they then will respond to emails in very good time. It's it's honestly not about the quality. It's not that if you're not a very good scientist, you're sitting there mm. with time on your hands that you'll send a quote to the SMC. It doesn't work like that. The critical bit is whether you have been convinced that this is an important thing to do. Um, so that that's what I would say is they've been convinced. Remember as well that I don't know if you were um, at the SMC when we had an introduction to the media, but one of our, the only, we don't actually do events at the SMC, but the one event we do twice a year um, is, is a recruitment event. And we go out into the universities and the institutes and we've got this really, it's just a three hour seminar of persuasion. We put up scientists who believe in what we do, who persuade the hundred people in the audience that this is worth doing. We get the best science journalists on board to say why they think it's a good idea. We get scientists from our own database 
who didn't used to want to do it and then did it and lived to tell the tale and 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 have a story of why they think it has hugely benefited their career, their university, and why they've enjoyed it. So the whole thing is three hours of kind of bombarding these poor academics with persuasion <laughs> as to why they should do it. And again, it's then very voluntary. So you know, we sometimes go to these events. We we do three hours of persuasion, and out of a hundred, only ten scientists sign up. But we are happy with that because we don't want the ninety that are sitting there thinking this is my worst nightmare or I haven't got time for this or or I'm not persuaded or I'm scared none of those things so at least you know that the 10 that sign up after that event are going to be responsive and they are responsive and of course there's it's it's really interesting you know you can have a scientist who doesn't respond for two years um, and then they start to respond and you know you call them up and they'll just say they'd finished a, a really intensive research project and had a little bit more time or or maybe they've just seen something covered really badly in the media and it's made them angry and they think well I can't I can't just be angry I'm going to have to start sharing my comments with the SMC so that I can influence this. So you said that initially when you were forming the SMC and you were going to the heads of the newspapers and they were saying oh we don't need this and now, fast forward almost 20 years, the journalists love it and they think it's an amazing resource. So how did that relationship change? Was it very sudden after you started reaching out to the journalists after the SMC started or has it been gradual? It, uh, it Yeah, it was not sudden. I think um, there were those moments, those examples I gave you with Dolly the sheep. Another one I remember was um, Tony Blair made his first ever science speech as prime minister and that was that was a nice one because the science journalists were tipped off that the speech was four o'clock they were actually all invited and I think it was in Oxford um, so they all decided to go but th- these were the, I mean it's only 20 years ago it's hard to think but we didn't have online media 20 years ago mm. so they were going to the speech um in Oxford and then having to somehow get back to the office um, and write up their, what, 800,000 words for tomorrow's Telegraph, Times, Guardian, whatever. Um, And so several of them actually approached us and said, is there any way that you could get the speech and get third party costs? So great and good, I suppose, you know, the, the head of the Wellcome Trust and um, some vice chancellors, sciencey vice chancellors to react to this science speech and get us those comments by the time we're sitting back at our desk. So it was gradual, but I do remember the reason that I remember these so clearly, so so um, that even though they were a long time ago, was they were they were good moments for us. You know, here here were these journalists who'd said, "I'm really sorry, but I don't think we'll need you." Um, seeing a role for us and we were able to do it we were able to do what they wanted and we then just became I think reliable I think things like Fukushima were a real turning point um, where the journalists were just so busy and that's been the case with COVID they were so busy they were being asked rather than doing two or three stories a day they were being asked by their editors to cover every development in the Fukushima story and the story was changing every few hours and so having, you know, in this kind of running commentary in their inbox of really good experts that they could copy and paste or that they could um, ask us, can we speak to them directly or they could get them for the 10 o'clock news that night. It it just suddenly started to make their life easier. Um, 
And I don't know how long it took. Again, this is something I say to new, we've got a new, um, two new SMCs starting up now in Taiwan and in East Africa. Um, and I try to remind them to not run before they can walk and that, you know, earning the trust of these journalists um, takes time. They, ha- they also, if they're copying, pasting quotes, they have to know that um, it's not going to come back on them and somebody's going to say that quote was completely inaccurate or that scientist that you quoted last week is a real maverick and outside of the mainstream, what are you thinking of? And I think over time, the fact that they were using uh, what we were sending and never getting in trouble and not getting criticised and that they started to really trust us. I'll tell you the other thing that made a massive difference and, again, really interesting in terms of our initial response. There were kind of elder statesmen of science journalists when, when I came. So, like I say, there was Tim Radford, who was science editor at The Guardian, absolutely loved and fated and you know you you somebody like me who just appeared on the scene couldn't go to him and say right let me help you do your job properly I mean you know <laughs> he was he was helping me he was giving me his contacts um there was Roger Highfield who was a science editor on the Daily Telegraph who had a PhD who'd written books about chemicals written books at Mad Ridley on, on genomics I mean these were there was Mark Henderson who was the science editor of the times who's known as being really ambitious and then something changed um and they all I don't really know what happened there was some things were changing in newspapers and they all left a lot of them left so Tim Radford actually retired Mark Henderson left the times and became director of communications at the Wellcome Trust um Roger Highfield left the Telegraph and became director of communications at the Science Museum and we were bereft Uh, There was another one, Charles Clover, who was environment editor at The Telegraph as well. He was brilliant. And he left to run a fishing charity. We were bereft. We were, I just remember thinking, how is this going to work? Like these journalists are so good. They, they care about science and their replacements. We were, we were being phoned up by The Telegraph saying, oh, there's this new chap who's taken over from Roger Highfield. And he was a general news reporter and he did a bit of sports reporting. And you're like, oh God, this is awful. (laughs) Um, and, you know, now I feel really bad thinking about that because a lot of those people, they they knocked on our door straight away and said, oh, we gather that Roger was using you. Can we be added to all your lists? We we went and met all of them. What we discovered, we really, I mean, you know, never let anyone say anybody who gets a job on a national news newspaper or news outlet is clever, really clever. I, that You know, it's you don't get those jobs without being incredibly smart. Um, so what we were seeing was these smart young journalists who had not a clue about science, who actually needed us even more. They needed us even more. So suddenly something that was a threat felt like an opportunity. And, and we were having very honest conversations with these people saying, you know, you, you, you're a new journalist, but there are many pitfalls in science. You could get a lot wrong. Please work with us. And, is, you know, I would even say to them when I met them, for an initial coffee, I'd say, how do you feel about me emailing you when you get things wrong? Um, And it's very different to the kind of Ben Goldacre, let's write an article saying, you know, journalists got stuff wrong, tweeting it everywhere, humiliating and embarrassing these journalists. What we were saying is we want to work with you. The Science Media Centre wants good coverage, but we're prepared to help you behind the scenes. And because because they needed help and they were smart, they did that. And actually, there are a whole new breed of young, and many of them are still around today. People like Vicky Allen on the Mail, and they become really 
bloody good science journalist with no science background at all, no kind of decade of expertise. And now look, you know, they're now covering COVID and I think they're doing a really brilliant job. So, um, but they, they, I think, relied on us more than ever. So all of these services, when you ask about the gradual, I think these services were, were well thought out. They were based on, they weren't things we uh, thought up over a glass of wine. They were things that we developed based on a need clear need being articulated by the journalists so we were meeting a need while promoting our mission and I you know if any startup ever comes to me I've got some kind of tips for them about yeah make sure you're you don't start in a little room and say this is what I fancy doing find out whether it it will be used and it will make a difference do your market research do your market research Over the course of the SMC, obviously you cover controversial areas of science. Have you seen any trends in things that are controversial, like any topics? Obviously, vaccine is one which keeps coming up um, and is more pertinent these days as well. Um, But have you seen any sort of fluctuations or anything which has, you know, kept on going throughout the time the SMC has been operating? Oh, that's interesting. I think, I mean, one... One thing I swear by is if science, health and environment specialists cover it, it tends to be done better. I think they've got a vested interest in trying to report accurately. So one of the trends is that after MMR and GM and some of those big kind of feeding frenzies that led to us being set up, for various reasons, quite a lot of editors did have a reset within their newsroom and did recognise that, you know, a a vaccine programme like MMR, which was eventually established as a very, very safe, I mean, no no vaccine is 100% safe, but a very effective, very safe um, childhood vaccination programme had nearly been seen off by this misleading coverage over a link with autism. And, and I honestly think within newsrooms, they know they got that wrong. They know they got that wrong. And, and a lot of how they got it wrong was giving it to political reporters um, or general news reporters and not caring enough about getting the science right. So one of the trends, I think, is that those papers that, that um, have established uh, that they defer to their science, health and environment specialists tend to report science well. In other areas, I would say what we there hasn't been a kind of linear improvement. We we haven't gone from, you know, papers covering science badly to all papers covering science well. And it tends to be issue dependent. So um, there are issues, for example, I would cite things like antidepressants, um, e-cigarettes and statins as issues. And and I would add to that um, diet and nutrition. And what characterises those is that there's a lot of really awful coverage. And that comes from very prominent, high profile, maverick minority voices in those areas of science. Um, There are a lot of them about. So there are there are doctors who just whatever the evidence says, no matter how good the trial believe that statins are bad and that, that people should not be on statins. And they think they think it for various reasons. They think it's over-medicalisation. Um, they think that the studies have underplayed the risks. But but they are small in number, but very prominent. And, and the media does love a rat. 
Um, so I think I suppose what that would lead me, if you're asking me for a kind of trend, I suppose one of the things we haven't achieved is we haven't diluted the media's love of a row. They like a good old row. Um, and we haven't really succeeded in getting the media to be cautious about minority voices in science. Because if those minority voices are publishing different books every other week, diet and nutrition, you can imagine, you know, it's very difficult. If, if somebody says, I'm a leading nutritionist, I run nutrition clinics, I publish books, suddenly they sound to all the world and to my mum and dad or my friends as leading nutritionists. Um, within scientific circles, they are not leading nutritionists. They don't uh, do research in universities and research institutes, and they are not scientifically reliable but they are being given a large voice and that is really frustrating because it is one of those where if you were to do any kind of analysis the kind of space that some of these um, campaigners or activists are given is commensurate with that of hundreds of thousands of researchers across the whole of uh, UK science who are doing very good well-conducted mm. trials on diet and nutrition and e-cigarettes and are not getting the same kind of prominence. And it really matters. I know um, e-cigarettes, my colleague Tom, leads on that issue. And I know he was really depressed when a figure came out about a year ago saying that 50% of the public think that e-cigarettes are as harmful as cigarettes. And to be honest, not in, not in, none of the activists or none of the um, anti-e-cigarette experts that I've heard they would never dare claim that I mean they all say yes e-cigarettes are better than cigarettes mm. um, however they can be a gateway to smoking and they have other risks but but what's happened is because they've been given such prominence the message that has got through to ordinary people is that the harms are equivalent and that you know people will die because of that I mean quite frankly people will die because of that and and yet if you if you did any kind of and we have done, we've looked very, very hard. Who are the scientists who are actually researching this? And there are a bunch of them. They're not even, they're not e-cigarettes experts. They're public health experts like Linda Bald up in um, Edinburgh, Professor Robert West, who's a leading smoking cessation expert in UCL. So it's not that they're pro-e-cigarette. They're not. They're, they are people who have devoted decades of their life researching how you stop smoking because of the harms of smoking. And their research um, all reflects pretty similar that they are much, much, much safer than cigarettes. But it's getting, you know, it's getting the same kind of prominence as these other claims. So very frustrating. And, you know, I don't think the SMC has worked out a way of doing that. The only thing I would say is we we keep on keeping on. We're, you know, we say to these scientists, you've got to just keep doing the studies, speaking to journalists about them. And certainly the journalists. I think if you sat down with any of the science journalists, they would have a very good overview of where the best science lies on these issues. So that's one of the trends that we haven't been so successful at. Um, and then the other thing, I final thing I would say is that if you do look at thing, issues like GM, obviously you can absolutely see it with vaccines. So clearly now with, with in the last few days with the COVID vaccines, you know, we are not facing a situation of widespread climate uh, vaccine scepticism in the UK media, never mind anti-vaxxers on the internet. Um, when we started, there was scepticism about vaccines within national newspapers, within news offices of, of the BBC. There were people who were saying, 
we think the MMR vaccine isn't safe. That has completely disappeared. So one of the things we always say to scientists is things do change. The debate about genetic modification now mm. is very sensible, very measured, very intelligent, with lots of good journalists doing good coverage, completely different to that hysterical debate in 2000. So, yeah, some things have dramatically improved. And how do you think technology has changed the way that science is reported or has it changed the way science is reported? Uh, good question. So I suppose, I mean, you know, the, the, the arrival of digital and the Internet and, and, and different ways of communicating has cha- changed everything. I mean, you know, as I was saying to you earlier, back in those early days, the journalists would be writing one or two stories of about 800 words for tomorrow's newspaper. They would be filing by about half five, six o'clock. It was a kind of standard routine. And then the Internet arrives and we get online digital media um, and suddenly it's completely opened up. So, you know, the, the Daily Mail online they can take, you know, thousands and thousands of words now. So you've gone from a journalist contacting the Science Media Centre saying, I've been asked to write an article about um, dangerous chemicals and pregnancy. Can you get me three experts? My deadline, you know, maybe phoning you at 10am, my deadline is six o'clock, to routinely, routinely journalists phoning and saying, my editor's just uh, messaged me to say he needs a thousand words now. Now, you know, that has massive consequences that, that Nick Davis, um, who's an investigative journalist on The Guardian, wrote a brilliant book called Flat Earth News about 10 years ago, which went through all of this. If any journalism students listening to this, you, you, if you haven't read that book, do. And just talked about the impact on quality of journalists just not being able to fact check, not being able to go out there and uh, speak to authors directly to get their own third party experts. Everything just got compressed, you know, things that you journalists had a day to do um, they had to do straight away and actually again like what I was saying about the the change from these kind of older more ex, um, experienced science journalists to the new younger ones ended up being not a benefit to the SMC that's not the right way to say it, but it made us more important it made us more necessary and so did this change so if you've got journalists who've got to write five stories for their online newspaper that day Absolutely no way have they got time to get third party experts on top of write up the Lancet press release. So they really, really appreciate getting comments into their inbox. And they often ask us, they often say, my editor's just said he wants me to write this up or she wants me to write this up. Can you get us some comments? So it has changed that. But but in a way, it's just I mean, and we've been very we like I said earlier, we listen to what the journalists need and we adapt. But I think there were there were definitely some people who thought that technology would change everything. And I remember, you know, people saying, oh, the SMC's behind the times. Why aren't you making video clips? And I remember a lot of university press officers saying to me, oh, I've now been changed. I'm now not a press officer. I'm a digital media officer and I'm going to be getting uh, video clips of our experts and sending them to the BBC. And and. Everyone thinks I'm old fashioned and I'm a technophobe, but it's not really that. I was just saying to my colleagues, well, we haven't been asked for this by the journalists. So until they say, hold on, we desperately need a, a, a headshot of your scientists saying this rather than what you're sending, which is written quotes. I don't want to be doing that. that, that this is going to be a whole new skill set needed by our team. There'll be a lot of money on equipment. <coughs> and that is an example of something that never happened. It never happened. 
Um, and I bet a lot of universities spent a lot of money on training up staff for something that might be useful for their website, but the media are not asking us for video clips. And, and in fact, the BBC and many other um, respected broadcasters won't take them because they see them as, as PR. If they get video clips, a BBC journalist has to get them themselves. So I'm really glad that we didn't spend loads of time on that. And I, so it's good, it's your, your proviso of has it even changed things? I think, you know, on one level, everything's changed. And on another level, that kind of core SMC thing of galvanizing scientists, getting them to share their expertise with journalists is exactly what it's always been, but it's happening in different formats and on different platforms. With the rise of technology, with the rise of different platforms, social media, you know, everyone's a content creator, everyone's a publisher, you have, you know, an audience of potentially millions at your fingertips, giving you feedback on whatever you say. And obviously, this has been really great. But there has been a trend in the rise of, you know, conspiracy theories, mistrust in the media, fueled by fake news and whatever other stuff. So how do you think that journalists themselves and also the wider media can approach the public and regain that trust that was once there? Excellent question. Um, I think that question has been troubling editors and people who care about the future of journalism for a long time. And I think at different moments, there was real genuine fear that they had lost that battle. Funny enough, I, the one I remember was Grenfell Tower. The, the communities around Grenfell Tower explicitly rejected mainstream news and felt that it did not cover um, the issues around Grenfell either before or during or after in, in any way that served their interests. And they stopped, and I remember watching a whole Newsnight package on this, they stopped consuming any mainstream media because they they didn't think that they recognised their plight, their issues, their voices in that coverage. So I think there have been different moments where the media and editors thought we're losing this battle and people are, um, they're moving away from mainstream news media onto their, their preferred blogs, their preferred social media sites, their preferred alternative media, I suppose. I think COVID has reversed that to an extent. So I don't I don't think that the media came up with an answer. But one thing which I'm really pleased about is that to the extent that they had an answer, and I uh, my colleagues and I go to that's one of the things we've really missed actually about lockdown we tend to because we all live in London and we can go to um, these different think tank debates and the media society has debates very regularly and um, something called polis which is a um, a media think tank at the LSE we've been to quite a few of these debates and we've heard these thinkers and what I liked about what they were saying is that there were two choices either you saw what was happening on social media and decided that you had to be more like social media, uh, you know, giving more voices, allowing more theories to circulate, um, not having any kind of sense of objectivity and impartiality, but letting all opinions prevail. 
or you double down on what is unique about mainstream news. And that is, um, and this now takes me back all those 30 years, it's so long, to my journalism degree, where we did study and looked at that whole journalistic values. And this was about objectivity, neutrality, impartiality. So some attempt, of course, often it fails, but some attempt in a newsroom and some kind of values and principles and norms which suggests that what you are reading, if it's in a newspaper or a news outlet, is is objective and can be trusted. And uh, COVID has absolutely demonstrated that. I don't have the figures to hand, but um, certainly in the first six months, the number of people um, saying that they'd come back from social media to news media to find out trustworthy information on COVID was huge. It was in the millions and millions. The States as well, in the US, a lot of people saying, I still do a lot of social media, but when it comes to whether or not I should have a vaccine or whether or not COVID can be trans uh, transmitted between humans, mm. I, w- I would go to the New York Times, I would go to Wired or whatever. So, so yeah, I think it's almost not like, I, I don't think the journalists have achieved this themselves, but I think the, the mainstream news media has achieved it by doubling down on what is good about journalism, that it is distinct. What takes place in a newsroom is distinct in several ways to what happens on social media. And both of them serve a purpose and both of them are legitimate. We've talked a lot about journalists and the media. So really quickly, do you think, you know, scientists scientific industry, science publishers, are they doing enough to make science accessible to the public? And if not, what else do you think they could do? You know what, I really do. And I've really, I've watched it. I mean, I always say to people that the Science Media Centre was a product. We ourselves were a product. I'm sure we've helped things along. And, and sometimes people give us way too much credit for that. But we were a product of a changing attitude to this within the scientific community. So, you know, remember that um, the only reason the SMC exists is because the scientific community got together. They they responded to Baroness's and Greenfield's call. They put money into this initiative. They supported it because they already, back in 2000, recognised, you know, you can't, you just can't do it anymore where, where the scientist stays in their ivory tower, uh, publishes once a year in science, comes out, hands out the truth on tablets of stone and then goes straight back into the laboratory. It just doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that with the church or with politicians or with trade unions or with anybody. Every, you know, We have a more um, a, a, a kind of inclusive society where deference has disappeared. We, we need our... Um, our different um, communities to engage with the public, to earn the trust of the public. So that message had really been absorbed and we are a product of the scientific community acknowledging that. And then um, over all of these years, I have just seen more and more attention paid to that. So, for example, a lot of the big funders uh, now actually have policies whereby you apply for your grant, you only get your grant from one of the research councils or from the Wellcome Trust or one of the um, uh, medical research charities. You only get them if you sign up to the fact that you will do your research with their money and then you will publicise that research and engage with the public about that research. So now what we've got, which is really different to when we started, 
was built in incentives so that it's as I said earlier it's not just the kind of oh I'm a serious scientist but I do a bit of public engagement on the side there is a recognition that part of the scientific process a, a essential part of the scientific process is to do that experiment find those results and then make those results impact the ref as well I know lots of uh, university academics hate the um, research excellence framework. It puts a lot of pressure on them. But but there are elements of that that ask scientists to demonstrate impact. And one of the um, things listed under impact in the REF is influencing public opinion, changing attitudes, in, impacting on public behaviour. So we, over the last few years, every time the REF is coming up, we get all these scientists emailing us and saying, oh, could you send me a statement saying that we've done briefings with you? And we're really happy to do it because, um, <laughs> and again, it's so it's so clear to me that, that having that incentive built in makes them realise that, I mean, look at the words here, you know, research excellence framework, that they will only get, good marks in their research excellence framework assessment if they can demonstrate that they engage with the public. So I I think that kind of principle, that kind of value um, is really becoming embedded in the scientific community. And I, again, I think COVID will have really enhanced that. I mean, we've seen, you know, look at people like uh, um, Anne Johnson, who's one, one of our best epidemiologists, who who uh, now has been appointed to run the Academy of Medical Sciences, and she's been very, very active on COVID. You know, she's she's an eminent expert, um, but she hasn't said, I'm too busy to engage with the public on this. She's done so much media work. Um, people like Martin Landry and Peter Horby, the two scientists who run the recovery uh, clinical trial, that's the one that has been looking at all the existing drugs and whether they put putting them into trials to see if they can treat COVID. And they're the ones that found out that dexamethasone um, reduced deaths in, in a significant percentage of people. So, you know, really amazing clinical trial research. But they've also, every single time they've got a result, they've they've jumped on, luckily for us, it's been lovely, a science media centre uh, Zoom to talk to the journalists about what they just found. I think we must have done about six briefings with them so far. So, you know, these are incredibly busy people but not uh, at no stage have they said sorry Fiona we're too busy which they they'd have been entitled to we're too busy running a very important clinical trial to talk to 30 journalists go away and they haven't done that and I haven't I haven't needed to persuade them any stage so I'm really hoping my my chairman Jonathan Baker who's ex-BBC himself said to me do you think there will be some kind of dividend Covid dividend for for science communication and I really really believe there will I've spoke to a couple of people who are a bit more skeptical and said oh I'll just go back to the media won't want scientists anymore and but I'm I'm the glass half full definitely on this I think that a lot of a lot of programs like the Andrew Marr program like any questions question time I used to lobby them every so often why don't you ever have scientists on the panel and they never got back to me and now every week uh, question time has a scientist on the panel and they've been great communicators. A lot of people like Paul Nurse and uh, Eleanor Riley from Edinburgh. And, uh, you know, we've seen all these PHE, Jenny Harries, who's now been appointed as the new head of um, the new organisation that's replacing Public Health England. I just think, you know, Kate Bingham is known as an absolute 
life sciences hero because of her work on the vaccine task force. They're really good communicators. They're really interesting people. And I think they're, I don't think they're going to go away. I agree. I agree. And I'm all for that. I think science has been in the spotlight because of COVID and long may that continue. (laughs) (laughs) So Fiona, through your amazing career, amazingly varied career, what do you think is the most valuable thing that you've learned? Oh my goodness. I'm going to say stories hitting the headlines, even the most controversial stories, being in the headlines is always an opportunity as well as a threat. And I really still don't think people understand that. So so they're pootling along, they're doing their science quietly, and the next thing, GM, Frankenstein crops kill, is on the front page of every paper, or MMR causes autism. Or let's be really topical and say AstraZeneca vaccine linked with blood clots. I mean, who in their right mind would want to wake up to that um, on the front pages? But, but everybody in Britain is talking about that story because it's on the front page of every paper, because it's uh, the headlines of every news programme. Everybody's talking about it. If you, if you sit and listen in the park, you will hear ordinary people talking about blood clots and vaccines. And that is always an opportunity for scientists to get out there and say some general things, to say no vaccine is ever 100% safe. All vaccines have side effects. All drugs have side effects. What matters and what scientists and, and medical experts look at is whether those side effects outweigh the benefits of the vaccine. In this case, the vaccine vastly outweighs the risk these very small events so so that is something that if it wasn't in the headlines that message wouldn't lodge with people and I think talking about a dividend from Covid I think the public have learned many things they've learned that there is no such thing as the science um, they've learned that science grows that sometimes we when at the beginning of a, a new virus we don't know anything about it um, and then over the period of a year we know lots and lots about it but, but after we've looked into it and we've researched it and we've better understood it, our body of knowledge grows. And we go from complete uncertainty and lack of knowledge, um, which is scary, to, to growing knowledge through science. Um, so I think that, yeah, I, I think that science in the headlines is an opportunity as well as a threat. And I would link to that uh, my message, which I often am heard saying, especially to government press officers who are very risk averse. Don't just think of the risks of engaging in this story. Think of the risks of not engaging. So sometimes if you're asked, to, will you go on the Today programme tomorrow to talk about side effects of a vaccine, that the, the press officer of that scientist will just sit there thinking of everything that could go wrong. What if we uh, spark off a scare story which leads to people not getting their vaccine? That would be absolutely disastrous, you know, too risky. Let's not do it. But then in my view, what about the risks of not doing it? So you turn down that interview and you are the press officer for a fantastic scientist who has been doing these interviews for years, who's very good at communicating this risk benefit, who's unlikely to do anything terrible. You say no. And the next day you wake up and some producer who's got no science background has booked some maverick who is um, very sceptical of vaccines, 
not close to the evidence on this, hasn't examined any of this data, but quite happy to pontificate widely. You know, be careful what you wish for. You will have done much more damage by not doing it. So science in the headlines is always an opportunity as well as a threat and always look at the risks of not doing media work as well as the risks of doing it and weigh those up. For any scientists or budding journalists or really anyone who's interested, what do you think are the most important things for effective communication? So, so yes, I mean, being being accessible and clear. So having, having said earlier that, you know, there's this big myth around that, that scientists um, are terrible communicators and, you know, talking um, acronyms and throwing complicated statistics. Um, having said that wasn't true, of course, that, you know, that the scientific process demands that we use scientific terms in, in our day-to-day research relationships. And so, yes, you do, scientists do have to come out of that um, and not be talking in the way they talk to their peers, but realise that they're talking now to a public audience and adopt the kind of, you know, if you're talking to your 18-year-old daughter or your daughter's friends or whatever, um, then how would you explain your research? So I do think there are some really central um, um, tips here about, and, and practice, that's one of the things we've always advocated at the SMC that that if you're going to be doing media interviews you decide the three points you want to make you write them on a bit of paper and you practice the day before it just being really clear and and make sure that you do make those points so so learn techniques that when when suddenly you get a completely left field question from the presenter that you weren't expecting just say what's really important for me to say today is that my research found this so you're not we, we don't want them to be like politicians and refuse to answer the question but we also do want them to learn techniques um, to make sure that whatever they wanted to communicate to the listeners of that program when they said yes to that interview to make sure they do that and we offer media training we've just actually had a um, had another 20 sessions funded which we're very excited about for training of women scientists who work on covid We've got a very long waiting list and they're all we're going to, we're, we're determined that they'll all get that training. Brilliant. And that's one of the key messages to them is is to um, be prepared and do a bit of practice. Fair enough. I can't believe we've been talking for over an hour. I've just been absolutely engrossed in in what you've been <laughs> saying and also remembering the fond memories of when I did an internship at the SMC. So thank you so much for Aww. talking to me today. <laughs> absolute pleasure and uh, congratulations on all you're doing it sounds like you're doing really interesting work so um, I'm gonna definitely listen to some of your other podcasts and keep in touch thank you so much I do have one more question for you before we go before we wrap up and that is what one thing would you like to leave listeners with oh that's really hard um one thing I think I think the science in the headlines is always an opportunity as well as a threat because I think behind that lies um, many of the barriers. I think that if people see intense interest in science as something problematic, as something potentially dangerous, as something that could get you in trouble, then we're not going to make the most of the opportunities. There is huge space. We've talked about this in, in terms of the changing media landscape. We now have huge space to, for scientists to take their part in the media debates about issues that affect every aspect of our lives. If you don't take that space, other people will take it. Other people who don't deal in evidence, 
who don't deal in accuracy, who are not interested in getting to the truth. Um, and I think we really need to hear more from scientists. And every time you worry about what could go wrong or you know, how this could uh, backfire on you, you are, you are turning down an opportunity to communicate science effectively and to better inform the public and inform the discussions they are having about science. So yeah, that's the one thing I think. See science in the headlines as a great opportunity to go out there and talk about what you love and what you know about. Scientists hate scandals, but Fiona is adamant about the opportunities of having science in the spotlight. And with COVID showing the public how the scientific process happens in real time, it's a great opportunity to keep science in the mainstream post-pandemic. Being a former intern at the SMC, I know firsthand how valuable science reporters find the roundups, rapid reactions and press briefings that the SMC provides. I also know how fun an office it is to be in, although, as you would expect, the pace was a lot quicker than the academic posts I had just been in. Coming out of your everyday scientific jargon can be difficult, but if you're going to tell an effective story, you need to simplify your message while staying true to the science. Easier said than done, but perhaps Fiona's tip of trying to explain it to an 18-year-old might help. If you're communicating to a live audience, or the media, practice being clear and concise, especially if you're not used to speaking to lay audiences. And if you're nervous about answering questions, decide on three points you want to make and try and refocus back to those core points. In a time of fake news and misinformation, mistrust in the media is at an all-time high, and the public need information which is accurate, reliable and accessible. So, although interacting with the media may seem like a risk, science reporters and mainstream news outlets are actually motivated to communicate science accurately. So, why not take a risk? If you liked this conversation, let me know. You can find more information about this episode by heading to the Malby website. Use the hashtag pros and comms on social media to carry on the conversation and make sure you follow pros and comms on your favourite podcast platform to keep up to date with new episodes. Music